All right, so this is our last, you know, introduction part three for adults. This is introduction unto nothing, right? Because we leave systematics next week and go into the Gospel of Mark uh, for, I guess, both students in here. This is introduction into what we're actually doing next week. Uh, there's a box by the piano with books and workbooks. Grab one of those. You don't have homework for next week, but you'll want one of these for Sunday school next week. Um, and because we're going to be studying theology. And so for the last two weeks, we've just kind of been talking about what theology is, why we would study it. We want to study theology so that we may wonder and worship God, so that we may understand his word, so that we can fight the counterfeits that were, were given by our culture. And I mean, nobody, nobody thinks theology is bad. Well, how about this? None of you guys think theology is bad, I'm assuming, right? Half the Sunday school class didn't show up. They do. That's why they're gone. They're just boycotting. Um, but I, I'm guessing no one in our church is actively opposed to doing theology. Um, but maybe we think it's unimportant. It's a lower priority, right? It, it's not wrong that we're doing theology, but wouldn't it be better if we did whatever instead? You know, hey, I'm, I'm glad Dan got his little, you know, hobby of theology out of the way. Now we can get back into Mark where the real spiritual, the real ministry, the real stuff happens. You know, it's fine if you do theology, but it's better if you don't. There, there's other things you should be spending your time and your energy on. And, you know, when I say, but theology isn't, is it? Like, that, that's the attitude I'm, I'm wanting to talk about. Uh, I want to convince you that systematics is worth our time, that it's worth doing, you know, for a few months a year in here, but then also just generally with our lives. And so today we just want to hit, you know, five objections of, hey, maybe theology isn't actually worth our time. And none of this is really going to be new. I'm fine with that. You know, going through theology is a big endeavor. It's going to take a couple of years if... You know, we keep the schedule that we're thinking. Um, and so, so let's deal with some objections up front. That way I don't have to rehash them every time we jump into a new doctrine. So up first, it's, it's this. But theology isn't the Bible, is it? Like, why, why wouldn't we just study the Bible instead of talking about the Bible, right? Like, like I get this. I, I've heard this objection a billion times, right? If God wanted us to do theology, he would have given us a theology book. But he didn't. He gave us the Bible. He gave us stories. He gave us letters. He gave us poems. He gave us prophecies and genealogies. So why don't we spend our time with what God actually gave us instead of, you know, talking about what God gave us? It's a level removed from Scripture, right? Let's not hover over the Bible. Let's actually get into the Word. Um, or, you know, it's the attitude that when I make a claim, you know, God is eternally three persons, yet there's one true living God. It's, you, you have that impulse to say chapter and verse. Like, where do you see that in the Bible? Like, give me a verse and I'll believe it. But if you can't point me to a verse, then I'm going to be a little bit suspicious of this. Um, I mean, maybe you've heard the phrase, no creed but the Bible, right? We, we don't want to believe things that 
a bunch of men told us in Nicaea 325, I think, uh, to believe. We, we want to know what God wants us to believe. So, so we don't trust the creeds. We don't trust theology. We trust God. And so in the 19th century, there's a, a group there that said exactly these things, right? We don't want to base our faith on church tradition, on church councils. We just want the simplicity of the Bible. So they made this movement that says, let's get rid of all of this baggage and just go straight into the Bible. Um, you know, they started publishing a journal to get back to the simplicity of Scripture. They called it Studies in the Scripture, which ironically didn't end up as a verse-by-verse commentary on the Bible. It turned into a systematic theology of what the Bible teaches. Um, And those followers who wanted to reject the creeds and the tradition became known today as the Jehovah's Witnesses. Right? I know several families who have had run-ins with them just recently, right? And this is what happens. When you when you reject thinking theologically, when you reject the accumulated tradition of the church and what it says about the Bible, you stray into heresy. Because every heresy, you've never had somebody knock on your door, whether it's a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness or, um, I don't know if they're big up here. In Louisville, there's this Korean cult. Um, I can't think of what they're called. They believe in Mother God and that Jesus came back in like the 1970s or something. Um, they were huge in, in Louisville. Um, you know, they all say, no, we believe what the Bible's teaching. And if we're just sticking with, okay, like, I don't know how to deal with that. Because you can't tell them what the Bible says. They say they believe what the Bible says. They're, because if you start saying, no, 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 that's not what it means, then you're saying, well, here's my opinion. And it's irrelevant. We just want the Bible. And so this objection that the Bible or that theology isn't the Bible doesn't really work. It, it, when you put it into practice, it doesn't work. You know, as mentioned, you know, no creed but the Bible. What that really is saying oftentimes is no authority but mine, right? I have beliefs about what the Bible says, but um, nobody can check them, right? It's like we're living in a time of judges, right? In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Um, And so if you say no creed but the Bible, you're saying, I believe things about the Bible, but nobody has authority to tell me whether I'm right or wrong, which it's a dangerous place to be. Um, I mean, theology, it helps us understand the Bible. It helps us explain the Bible. It systematizes the Bible. It submits itself to the Bible. So if we're just saying, all we can do is quote verses, we can't ever group verses, think logically, make, make analysis over these things, and move into systematics, and we can't take the history of interpretation, if we can't use philosophy, then like, what do you do when the Jehovah's Witnesses show up at your door and say, Jesus is a created being, and he's not God. You should stop worshiping him, or you're going to go to hell. They don't believe in hell, so I don't know what happens. Um, So you say, hang on, hang on, let's start quoting the Bible. John 49, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Look, Jesus is God. If you see Jesus, you see God. And they say, Hang on, keep reading. Jump down to verse 28. You heard me say, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you love me, you have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father and the Father is greater than I. See, Christians, 
The Bible says the Father is greater than the Son. So you can't believe that Jesus is God. And you say, whoa, 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 whoa. Jump back to John 8, 58. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. See, Jesus is eternal. Even before Abraham, Jesus was alive. And they say, no, because in Proverbs 8, 22, Jesus, you believe Jesus is the wisdom of God, don't you? You better. Well, in Proverbs, wisdom says, the Lord possessed me at the beginning of the work, the first of his acts of old. So, of course, Jesus was before Abraham because Jesus was the first and the greatest creation, but he's not God, right? God created him as his first act. And so you just go and you start spitting verses back and forth at each other. And how do you, how do you debate truth? How do you debate the Bible? How do you have a conversation with a heretic? Do you just have this verse-quoting competition and whoever runs out of verses first loses? Is that, is that how we decide, you know, what the Bible teaches? Is it just a, you know, we have the, the early church councils. Was it just a massive Bible drill? You know, you have Augustine, you have Arius, you have whoever up front, and they say, all right, let's start quoting verses, and when you run out, you get burned at the stake, last man alive creates orthodoxy. Like, that's not how it works. No, you need extra biblical language so more than just chapters and verses, to protect the Bible and to protect what it really means. And when I say you need those, I mean we need those, the church. We don't do theology alone. We do it in community. We do it with one another. We do it with a historical church. And I mean, if you take the Jehovah's Witnesses, right, the simplicity of the Bible isn't really that. It's, 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 just, it's just a way to understand the Bible just like Orthodox Christians have, but instead of having 2,000 years of debate, I want to use the phrase peer-reviewed. I'm not sure if that's the right language to use here, but instead of, you know, studied, reviewed, debated, analyzed language, um, you just have, well, Charles Taze Russell said this, and, you know, he won't let anybody critique him to refine him. And so, so when they say, no creed but the Bible, we just want the simplicity of Scripture, they're really saying, no creed but what Charles Russell tells us. We have an authority outside Scripture. We just don't like to admit it. And so, you know, I get this. Why don't we just study the Bible? We need more Bible. I, I agree. We need more Bible. But we also need better Bible reading, better Bible study. We need to know what the Bible teaches and not just, you know, know what the Bible, you know, be able to recite it, right? We, the devil knows the Bible better than any of us, better than all of us combined. And yet that's not enough. Like he's missing something. He doesn't worship God. And so we need theology to shape the lenses by which we read the Bible, right? We need to see it in a way that is true, that reflects the goodness and the beauty and the kindness and the love of God so that we worship him and praise him. There, there's a wide way to read the Bible that leads to death and a narrow way that leads to life. And, and so we want to protect the Bible and read it in the way that God wrote it, which is going to come from using theology, and so a strict biblicism, right, just the Bible, while it sounds good, like, hey, the Bible is all we need, 
it really diminishes the Bible. Because if we're saying all we can do is like recite verses, then we treat the Bible like, like a book of enchantments, right? If I open my book and I read my magic words, then something great happens. Where I'm saying, let's not get rid of the Bible. Let's take the Bible, and instead of having a book of potions, let's make it the absolute foundation for your thoughts of reality. Have it be our epistemological and metaphysical, or you know, the source of truth, the source of belief, the source of reality, where where everything happens. Make it the foundation, the standard of everything, and let's have a big view of the Bible, which is coming from doing two things: studying the Bible itself and studying theology so we can read the Bible better. Which, ironically, in Sunday school this year, we're going to study the Bible itself and study theology so we can read it better. Um, So I think that's the big objection. I don't know if I did that justice. We'll do questions at the end. But to say theology is not the Bible, I don't think that works. We need theology to help us understand the Bible, and we get theology from the Bible. But maybe you say, okay, I don't have Jehovah's Witnesses at my door. You know, how about we do something practical, right? Like, I, if you knew my life, we would not be wasting time on theology. Like, I got 99 problems, but the hypostatic union ain't one, which is the doctrine of how Christ is fully God and fully man at the same time. Um, you know, let's deal with some cultural struggles in Sunday school. Let's talk about gender, the value of life, the ethics of foreign engagement. Let's deal with my personal issues, my anger, my addiction, my parenting, my marriage, my financing, my lust, my sloth, my gluttony. Just kidding, we don't believe in gluttony, we're Baptist. My envy, my malice, my pride. Like, let's deal with those things. Or let, let's deal with ministry, ministry questions in Sunday school, right? There's people in foreign lands dying without ever hearing the gospel, and we're going to talk about how Jesus is fully God and fully man. Like, we want to waste our time talking about how many angels dance on the head of a needle, or what God was doing before creation, that seems like a massive waste of time when there's more pressing issues. Um, Actually, Augustine in the Confessions was asked, you know, about what God was doing before creation. I love love what he does. He says, um, and now I have an answer to the man who says, what was God doing before he made heaven and earth? Someone once, evading the force of the question, it's said to have made the jesting reply, God was making a hell for people who look too deeply into things. That's not my answer. To make a joke about something does not mean that one understands it. No, that's not my answer. Which, I think this is why I love Augustine so much. He's like, here's a serious question. I'm not going to just make a joke about that question. <clears throat> However, if somebody was going to make a joke, here's a little jokey joke that they'd make. But of course, I'm not going to make a joke here. That, that would be completely out of line, right? A legitimate question gets a legitimate answer. Um, But, you know, to say theology isn't practical is evangelicals, conservative evangelicals maybe especially, we have this hobby of freaking out about a little bit of everything, right? Every few years a new thing comes up and, you know, oh, this is major. The church has never done anything like this before. We need to, you know, rally the, the... Circle the wagons, whatever that phrase is. Rally the horses, you know, the Calvary. We need to go headlong into whatever this is and spend a few years fighting it, whether we win or whether we lose. But in a few years, it's not going to matter. We're going to move on to something else, right? Like we did this a few years ago with um, 
a burger felt decision and gay marriage. We said, oh, we need to put all of our effort into this issue right here. This is going to destroy the church if we don't. And then, you know, a couple years later, it's something new, and it's something new, and the old battles just, you know, are normal now. And so we spend all of this time dealing with the surface issues that come up, and we never deal with the deeper underlying doctrines that would actually help us understand the top issues, right? So we spend all of our time, I don't know if this is a good analogy, I think it is, but, you know, waves in the ocean are visible and they're dangerous. And one of the things, I mean, the climate and the wind causes waves, but one of the main things that causes waves is the current under the water that are never seen, that are never, you know, studied unless you're oceanographer, marine biologist, whatever. And so we always tend to focus on the waves. This is what we can see. This is dangerous. But we never really study the currents that are causing the waves. And so we spend all of our time talking about LGBTQIA plus issues, but we don't spend a proportional amount of time talking about what does it mean to be human? What's that about? What does it mean to be embodied? to live in the image of God. Because if we study those things, we're going to have a lot better, deeper thoughts about sexuality. We haven't spent a proportional amount of time talking about the doctrine of harmonia, 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 doctrine of sin. We don't need to use big words. Like, let's just use words I can pronounce. If we talk about what it means to be born in sin, then maybe that tells us something about a born-this-way argument and how we should think about that. We, we haven't really thought deeply, what does it mean to live in a world of brokenness? And is brokenness something to be accommodated or to be fixed or a mix of both? And how do we tell the difference? And so instead of freaking out about the surface level things each year, I want to you know, go a little bit deeper so that whatever comes up next, we're prepared to talk about. It. We're not just dealing with issues. We're dealing with the, the currents that fuel those issues. And so doing theology is practical. It's just a step deeper than what we tend to do and what you know, can be done on a radio talk show or through memes on Facebook. And so I would rather spend you know, a month talking about the goodness of the image of God and being embodied as humans than six months talking about artificial intelligence. Because one, we're starting from the scripture and working up to have this full-orb doctrine, and the other we're talking with culture and working our way down and hoping we get to the Bible somewhere. And one of those is far more helpful for Christians. Um, furthermore, let's just jump, let's, we're not going to talk about that one. Just cross that out. Um, our, our beliefs, they determine our actions. Our beliefs determine our ethics, right? So you have this verse in Titus, Titus chapter 2, verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. What is that? What kind of things accord with sound doctrine? All right, well, what's the 12th? The doctrine of Scripture, the doctrine of God, the doctrine of man, sin, Christ, redemption, salvation, Holy Spirit, the church, last things, um, ordinances, and heaven and hell. I think are the big 12. Is that, anybody know what the rest of Titus 2 says accords with sound doctrine? So the rest of the chapter says this. Um, As for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Here's what sound doctrine is going to look like. Older men should be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, love, steadfastness. 
Older women, likewise, reverent, not slanderers, or slaves to much wine. Teach what is good, training younger women, loving husbands, children, self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive. Um, younger men to be self-controlled. I love that Titus thinks that younger women and women in general can do a lot of things at one time. And he's like, men, just be self-controlled. Like, we can't deal with all that. Just be self-controlled. Um, but is that what you think when you say, what, what comes out of sound doctrine? We think heady knowledge and puffed up egos. Titus doesn't believe that. The Holy Spirit doesn't believe it. He says teaching sound doctrine is incredibly practical because it teaches you to be self-controlled, dignified, sober-minded, reverent, you know, self-controlled, pure, those kind of things. It is practical to do theology. Maybe, maybe not on the surface, but in a much deeper, more transformative way. Or how about this one? But theology isn't attractive, right? You don't grow a church by teaching theology, um, right? It's the objection that people don't come to church looking for a bunch of facts about God and his works. They come because they have a practical felt need, right? I think I just dealt with this in the last section. Um, but I do want to say a couple more things here, that theology actually does grow a church. Maybe not quickly, but this is how you grow a church substantially, right? I think one of the great condemnations in the Bible, this is about the people of Israel. I think if any verse applies to the state of the American church right now, it's probably uh, Romans 10, verse 2 and 3. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness, right? Ignorance of God, but zealousness for God leads to rejecting the gospel. is what Paul says for the nation of Israel. Um, he, and so he says, like, I wish they had, yes, zealousness, but also knowledge so that they would submit to God's righteousness instead of establishing their own righteousness, right? Zealousness isn't good enough. We need educated, theologically accurate zealousness. Um, but also... I mean, just thinking really practically, do you know every time there's a survey, do you know what the number one ex reason, I was going to say excuse, I'm going to use the word reason, the number one reason people give for not sharing their faith is? Fear. Fear? I mean, that would be mine. That's what I would say. The one that always comes up on the top of surveys is, but what if I get a question I can't answer? That's always the, the, the top one. And so what do we do when we study theology? What if I give you some answers to questions that you may be afraid to get? Is that going to help evangelism then? Is that going to help give you confidence? Like, the fear is still there. You'll just find different things to be afraid of. Um, but we, we can maybe better share the gospel by studying theology. It helps us to overcome those, those hurdles so that you can have confidence when you're talking to a, I don't know, a Jehovah's Witness about the deity of Christ or your neighbor who was caught in their snare, you know. Hey, I saw you had the Jehovah's Witnesses. They're a little bit crazy. You want to hear what the truth actually is? Um, help us to explain, how do you know that Jesus is God? Does it actually make a difference and why it matters in their life? I mean, we've had, we've had a lot of visitors at our church recently. God's just blessed us. And then the conversations of, you know, tell me about yourself. Why are you here? Nobody has said, I left my former church or came to this church from nothing because what I had before was too substantial and too deep, and it taught me too much about God. 
everyone said, it's a little bit fluffy and I'm not getting much. I need the Bible. I need to know what God is like and how to live righteously before him and how to receive Christ, you know, glorious gospel into every inch of my life. Like that's what's growing our church right now as people are searching for deep, historic, reliable answers. Um, there's this blog post. There's 2018 that kind of went viral in my circles, which maybe aren't that big, um, youth ministry circles. And I think it was, you know, incredibly helpful in 2018. And the past five years have just gone, I mean, you know, you know what's happened in the past five years. And um, it, it's, it's called Today's Student Ministry Answers Yesterday's Questions. I'm going to, you know, read a bit of this. And it basically says that, you know, student ministry has done a lot of good through the decades. But then it turns, I'm going to summarize this as much as I can. And he says, at the risk of sounding like a young fogey, there's a manner of student ministry that's as common as it is destructive. I don't even have to describe it in great detail for you to know what I'm talking about. It's goofy. It's gaudy. It encourages students to put live goldfishes in their mouths. And it has to be noted, this really did work for a season. In the 80s and 90s, there were real incentives to being a Christian. You got some social capital out of going to church. Heck, you probably even get a spouse. There is a feeling, though, that the church might not want you. It was formal. You were casual. It was serious. You yucked it up on the weekends. It was pure. You were sinful. There is an assumption that the living room of the church was essentially good. The problem was the front door was imposing and the foyer was daunting. And so in that context, a less formal, where did it go? The less formal, serious, or otherwise fastidious the speaker was, the more likely the listener was to feel accepted, welcomed at home. So I don't want to impute bad motives to those I'm criticizing. Here's the thing, though. The reason people aren't Christians today are different than the reasons they weren't 30 years ago. Maybe this story will help. I have like three more paragraphs. Several months ago, I had a conversation about faith with a very thoughtful sophomore in college. He brought up issues surrounding traditional Christian teaching on sexuality. He politely but firmly told me he found the ethic I described, the one held by Augustine, his grandmother, and Barack Obama during his first term, to be regressive, oppressive, and otherwise morally bankrupt. The conversation isn't unique at all. Indeed, even when it doesn't happen explicitly, it's no doubt happening implicitly every time we share our faith in the modern West. This episode illustrates the important but overlooked point. Today, people stay home on Sunday not because they view themselves as deficient, but because they view the church as deficient. I'd argue that seeing how many marshmallows one could stuff in their mouths never provided a compelling motive for students to stay in church. But today, it can't even get them to come in the first place. We thus needlessly beclown ourselves in front of young people to our own peril. There's good news. The Christian faith is inherently deep. It really does provide a credible, serious explanation for reality. Before it gave us lime green shirts that ripped off the Sprite logo to say spirit, it gave us the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. We don't need to lower the bar of formality to become welcoming. Rather, we need to raise the bar of thoughtfulness to become relevant, credible witnesses to the slain lamb who has begun his reign. 
And so, I mean, it's talking about youth ministry in general. I think it applies to the whole church, right? Relevance in this day and age comes through going deep, going historic, going substantial, not going light. We need to be thoughtful. We need to answer the hard questions instead of avoiding them. And so you can accuse me of overstating this if you want to, but I'm convinced if we want to keep the young people from leaving our church, whatever that means, um, you know, then we need to intentionally do deep theology instead of avoiding it to give them the deep things of God that will help them to make sense of the universe. Right now, in this day and age, depth, not superficial avoidance, is what's going to grow the church. Ten minutes. All right. But theology isn't worshipful. Um, I've talked about this for two weeks already, right? So if you still have the subjection, I mean, my, my impulse, like, I want to be like, Theology isn't worshipful. And then just like make a meme and make a joke and move on. Theology is not worshipful. Um, But Augustine said, you know, serious questions get serious answers. So I'll I'll do it again. Um, You know, there's the idea of what? If you dissect a frog, you can learn all of its parts. By the end of the day, you have knowledge in a dead frog. Wouldn't it be better just to watch the frog leap in ignorance? You're not knowledgeable, but at least you have worship and wonder at the ability of the frog, right? One is theology, the other is worship. You can't have both. But that argument just doesn't, it doesn't work, right? If theology doesn't lead to worship, you're doing it wrong. Um, Theology doesn't put God in a box so that we can tell him who he is and what he can do. No, like, the, the categories of theology are defined by God. They come from Scripture. God tells us who he is. He defines the categories. He gives the source and the knowledge and the data. He, often, he, he always transcends our knowledge in things, right? So while it's impossible to know God fully because he's infinite and we are finite and the finite can never fully capture the infinite, like we can know God truly, which leaves room for theology and for worship. And in Ephesians 1, I'm jumping in the middle of a sentence, but there is a way to do theology that leads to not worshiping, a way of doing dead theology, right? Um, Having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance, and the immeasurable greatness of its power towards us to believe, right? There's a way of knowing that creates hope. And there's a way of knowing that doesn't create hope. I already said, Satan's the best theologian that there is. And he has no hope. So Paul prays that you would have a knowledge that leads to hope and not one that leads to not hoping, right? They say, we need a kind of hope that flows from knowing, not just demonic theology, one that leads to desire and love and knowledge and treasuring and glorying in the work of God. And so when we do theology rightly, like, it will lead us to deeper senses of worship. I'm guessing not many of us have ever pondered the... um, the extra Calvinisticum, which is basically this idea that says, if I just said this, the finite can never fully contain the infinite, right? That, that makes sense to us. So then how does the finite man, Jesus Christ, contain the infinite, eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity? Um, 
Is, is there stuff of the Son of God that's left over that did not fit into the historical man, Jesus of Nazareth? And what's the significance of that extra part of Jesus, if it is, right? Um, you know, how can you contain the fullness of the glory of the image of God into one single man? And as you start to think through that and ponder that and deal with the difficulties of these hard questions, it leads you to profound, deep worship. Superficial truths lead to superficial worship. Deep truths lead to deep worship. So, I mean, if, if you think this is the case, I, can, I, can I do like a double dog dare? Is that allowed? Um, you know, put down whatever, Jesus calling a daily bread, whatever your devotional thing you read for a month and grab... Grab something like, um, there's a book, Your Theologian. Oh, my friend died. So, a, grab, grab some work of theology. Uh, your Theologian is super introductory and accessible. And try reading it as part of your devotions. And then when we're back here in December doing this again, tell me if, if theology deepened or hindered your worship. And I think you'll see why I just want to make fun of you instead of actually answering this question. Last one. But theology isn't necessary, right? Maybe I've convinced you, okay, theology is good and well. Um, maybe it's not as a waste of time as I thought. But you, you know what else is really good? Homemade bread and hand washing your clothes. But like, I don't have time to make my own bread and to use a washboard down at the creek. And, like, it's fine if you want to do that, but, like, we have the, like we have our own doctor. Why, why do I need to do this? Like, I just go to the store and buy my butter. I don't churn it myself. Theology is good, but it's not necessary for me. To which I'll answer quickly. But God commands sound doctrine in the church, right? Titus 111, 2, 7, and 8 say that. Uh, God commands that we have solid theology. God prioritizes theology. He even equates it with the authority of scripture, going back to, to section one. So this, this is fascinating, right? Uh, I'm sure we'll deal with it in a couple months in 1 Corinthians. So we, we all know this verse. For I delivered to you as the first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. All right, interaction time. What's the Bible verse that says Christ will be raised on the third day? I feel like if we know maybe one verse of prophecy, it should be the one about Christ's resurrection. Anyone? That, that's where we are right here. Or, no, we're looking for a prophecy about this. So Christ was raised in accordance with the scriptures. So we're going to go Old Testament here. What, what verse tells us that Christ would be raised on the third day? Okay, here's the thing. You actually have the right answer. There's no verse in the Old Testament prophesying Christ's third day resurrection. But Paul says, but he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So, man, my pen just doesn't want to work. Come on, draw for me. There we go. I want to scribble all over this. So what, what is Paul doing? Maybe he's read his Old Testament a bunch of times and he's done theology. He says, okay, in Genesis 1, the first time we have life and creation is on day 
three. Good job. Or maybe uh, Hebrew says that in sacrificing Isaac, but then not sacrificing Isaac on the mountain, having the, the ram show up, that, that Abraham received him back from the dead. What day of mountain travel did, did Isaac almost get sacrificed on? The third day on the mountain. Uh, maybe it's, uh, the, uh, the Psalms say, you know, your word is true. The, the, the law of the Lord is life. On what day after, after arriving at Sinai did God come down and give the law, which is life? Day three, what day after being swallowed by a whale, a grave, Jesus would call it, did Jonah come back to life? Day three. And, I mean, here's the closest one to a prophecy. On what day does Hosea 8, is it? I don't have the verse here. Um, On what day does Hosea 8 say that Israel will be restored? It's the third day. I'm guessing we don't know. Hosea, you could get it from context. Oh, Oh, which day after Passover... Did Israel cross the Red Sea and have life instead of being chased to death? Third day. So maybe Paul says, okay, I don't have a chapter and a verse to tell me this truth, but I can read this scripture theologically and say with full confidence that Christ was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Um, So we need theology. It's necessary. We need it because we're bombarded with false theology all around us, right? This is the verse Joel preached on a few weeks ago. We don't want to be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, but we want to grow up in every way into Christ. And I mean, finally, truth and experience are related. Like what we experience day to day is going to be founded on what we believe, right? It's like if a man's falling from a 10th story window, He can shout at every floor, I'm doing fine, I'm doing fine, I'm doing fine. But eventually, reality and experience are going to crash into each other. And we're going to (laughs) realize, maybe my experience isn't the standard for truth. And so, theology is necessary to teach us what reality is. Um, I, I did not save time for questions. So what's next for Sunday school? So we finish our introduction. Great, good for us. So adults, you're going to be doing Mark for two months. Students, we're going to be doing this, grab a book by the piano for two months. And then in December, uh, we're going to jump into the doctrine of Scripture, which I'm really looking forward to. I think I'm going to do you know, the doctrine of Revelation, what the Bible is, and then how do we know that the Bible is. Like, how can we know that we can trust the Bible, which is a lesson I'm really looking forward to. Because everyone asks that question. Uh, So let me pray for us, and then we'll go to worship. Heavenly Father, um, we we thank you that you have made yourself known to us. Um, I mean, that's the reason that we come together as a church. We say it's to, to know Jesus and to make him known, and we want to know Christ so that we may know and worship you and give you the praise and the honor and the, and the, and the, the life that you deserve. So um, we thank you that you have given us your word, um, not just to read and memorize and to meditate on, but to study, to analyze, to figure out what it means so that we can actually use it in our lives. Uh, so I pray that um, these last couple of weeks, so we uh, haven't 
really gotten into any particular doctrines, that they would be helpful in just the way that we think about your word and about the study of it. And we pray that, um, that it would lead us to worship, right? I've said that every week now, but we really want to do this in order to praise and glorify you. And Lord, so we pray that as we go into uh, our worship service now, that that's exactly what we would do, that we would worship you in spirit and in truth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.